thought it might be good to have someone else tell the story. I've been telling you guys a lot of stories lately, and we have been in an uh, incredible series called New Beginnings. And uh, if you've been journeying with us through the series, then uh, this will just be a quick recap. Otherwise, I want to be uh, uh, inclusive, so I'll recap just quickly where we've gone so far. We started with a conversation about uh, sometimes we have to leave things behind and go the direction God's called us to, because if we don't go the right direction, we'll never reach our destiny. And we talked about how though we may desire something, come on now, if we got on I-5 and we went south, we're never getting to Seattle. No matter how bad we want to go to Seattle, we've got to align our life uh, in a direction to reach our destiny. Desire, uh, though important, and has very little to do with where we end up. And so we started with a conversation about that. Then last week, we walked through this idea that sometimes we're heading where we're certain we are right, and then we encounter Jesus, and it changes our perspective. And everything we thought we knew changes because Jesus. And all of a sudden, we have a new vantage point. We look at things from a different perspective, and it changes everything. We may go the same place, but our intentions, our heart, things have changed because Jesus. We see things how he sees them. And then this week, we are going to talk um, about my guy, Peter. Now, I, I kind of hammered on Paul yesterday or last week because I have a hard time relating to Paul, even though he's written uh, most of the New Testament and responsible for most of it, because he's just hard to relate to. He just is like a champion. He's smart. He endures everything. He just always seems to come out on top. I'm like, man, I really like that guy, but I feel like this big every time I read a Paul story. Then I read a Peter story, and I'm like, we all can make it. Because Peter has some, uh, some big swings and some big misses, just like, uh, just like I do. Hopefully, we all do. And I begin to connect a little, bit, a little bit deeper with Peter. And I love Peter's story. And I love the progression that goes through his whole life. And so today, um, I want to talk to you guys a little bit about what happens when we know where we're supposed to go. We're headed that way. And then we blow it. And then we blow it. And it's on us. We knew where we were supposed to go. We knew what we were supposed to do, but we took a big swing and we missed. And sometimes those are the most painful, most difficult times of our lives. And so, so this week I want to talk about this, um, this very simple uh, principle. I'm going to show you a proverb, but then I'm going to give you kind of the, uh, the uh, more common uh, interpretation of it. So Proverbs 24, 16 says this, For though a righteous man falls seven times, they rise again. But the wicked stumble when calamity strikes. Though a righteous man falls seven times, they rise again. And uh, there's a, a, a version of that that shrinks it down. And yeah, you can throw that up there. And it says, fall seven times, get up eight. Fall seven times, get up eight. That's adapted from the scriptures, but that's an, uh, another ancient proverb that comes out of there. Fall seven times, get up eight. So, so I want to talk to you guys a little bit about how do we get up though we fall. But uh, I'm going to back up and just tell you uh, a funny story out of my life. I was, I was okay, this is going to be on the podcast, isn't it? I was watching Family Feud. All right, just get it over with. Throw the shame at me, okay? I was watching it. I don't know why I was watching it. I was just watching Family Feud. I was watching this family, and, and it was like in the afternoon, and I don't know why I was watching it, but it was just on. And there was a question, and it got my attention because the question, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase it badly, but basically the question was, name something that God might forgive, but your spouse wouldn't, right? That was a pretty good question. And, you know, the guy rings in, ding, and he's like, unfaithfulness, right? And bam, like 80 of the answer, 80 people had said unfaithfulness. There's like seven answers, so I don't know what the rest of the answers were. Some of them were awful. But, uh, but anyways, I, re- I remember just thinking what a wonderfully worded question. How many layers to that question? Let's begin with something God might forgive, Right? That's a pretty profound way to approach the grace and mercy and forgiveness of God, to package that. That there are some things that God might forgive. I'm not so sure about that. Then the implication that your spouse, your person that you're in a relationship with, uh, the one that's supposed to resemble Christ's love for the church, that there was a territory that that could go into that would be unforgivable. That's an interesting thing for us to process. Then, just what came to people's mind when they considered that? After, uh, after it was unfaithfulness, nobody else got another answer right. The only one I remember is that the final one, the guy says, how about murder? And I just thought, 
somehow you think that God would forgive murder, but your spouse couldn't. Well, I guess if you murdered them, it'd be hard for them to forgive you. So it's probably a fantastic answer. And so, uh, so I just thought that was amazing that that, that was the last answer. No one got another one right, and uh, it, was, it was pretty hilarious. But um, where am I going with that? There's this idea that sometimes we have an inclination about what God will and won't forgive and what people will and won't forgive, and it affects us. And uh, the idea of murder was just hilarious for me. So as I thought about it, I I realized that there's this principle that's at work in me. And so I'm going to be honest about a principle that's at work in me, and you can apply it to you, and you could say you agree with me, you don't agree with me, that's fine, but let's get there uh, together. I'm going to give you a horrible example to get there because I really struggle to pull this example together. So some of you are even going to be just offended by the example, and I'm okay with that. So at least it will be memorable for you. And, uh, and if you don't ever come back, you'll remember, you'll say, that's that crazy guy. So that's fine. But here's the, uh, here's the principle. I realize when it comes to forgiving things, the closer it is to my world, the harder the time I have with it, whether it's personally me forgiving or accepting that God would forgive it. So in theory, I can accept pretty easily that God would forgive things that don't actually intersect my personal world very much. So I'm going to give you one. It's a horrible example. Some of you are going to be terribly offended, and that's okay. So I was thinking about, like, what's something that I have no problem accepting that God would forgive, even though it's horrible, and I know it's horrible, and I think it's horrible. So I was thinking about animal cruelty, right? Animal cruelty. I don't have a pet. When I had a pet, she was a pain. And uh, I loved her, but she was a pain, my, my puppy, right? And, uh, and she's, you know, she's gone to be with Jesus or wherever she goes. I'm not worried about it because she, all she did was destroy things in my house. That's it. All she did. She didn't love anybody. She just destroyed everything. And so some of you are like, let me feel the hate. Here we go. Just feel it, right? But I love animals in theory. Like, I have no problem with them. I don't want anything bad to happen to them. And when I hear that someone's done something cruel to an animal, I think, man, that's awful, that's awful, and they should pay the full consequences of their actions and then be forgiven and move on because it doesn't hit my world too much, and I'm like, that's, I, they should pay, and then they should be, and I have no problem accepting that someone should be forgiven for that. Now, I have personal experience with identity theft, and so I have this thing in me, and I know it's in me. When I hear about identity theft, something triggers in my core it taps into this inner like rage spot. And I know in my head that absolutely someone who does that crime should be forgiven. They should pay the price, do the thing, go through the legal system, and they should be forgiven. But secretly in my core, I have this underneath belief that somewhere, like when Dante Allegro did his ninth circle of hell and it was like betrayals of their master, that somehow he didn't peek all the way down because there was a tenth layer down there and people who did identity theft were down there where they deserve. No? Okay, no one's with me on that. I'll move on. But something's in me. Why? Because I've, I've felt, I've experienced that. It's connected into my world. It dilated my, my space and my life and my heart. And I believe in my, in my mind, and I know that God forgives. And I'm totally okay accepting that his mercy is sufficient for folks that do that. And if you've been in here and you've done that, I'm sure he's forgiven you. But if I know about it, somewhere in my core, I have a hard time processing. What is that? It's like the closer it gets to me. Let me take it one step closer. What about if it's something that I've done? If I have a hard time, a more difficult time, as the layer of offense gets closer and closer and closer to me, what if the offense is something I've done? I'm not perfect. What if it's a mistake that I made? What if it's someone I wronged? What if it was a hurt that I instigated? What if it was a a failure on my part? If I take that principle all the way through, I know in my head that God's good with it, that he's forgiven me, that it's covered under the blood. I know that principle in my head, but sometimes getting that into the core of my heart is really, really challenging. And so I live like I know it, but in my heart, do I believe it? Or is there a thing in there still? I told you that's a horrible example, but I think maybe you're with me on the principle. And so I want to get this morning into this incredible story of Peter and this idea of fall seven times get up eight, because there is a truth that comes out in the word over and over and over and over again. God moves through imperfect people. He uses people who blow it. 
He is in the redemption business. He redeems. He restores. That's what he's about. That's like his full-time gig when it comes to us. But we have to let that get in. We have to let that get in. Or we live like he restores and redeems everybody else but us. Maybe that's all I needed to say. I think you guys are with me. Let's talk about Peter a little bit. I think this is an incredible story. I, I, if you look at the life of Peter, it's an, it's an amazing story to just look at the encapsulate his life. He's a fisherman. Now, he's a fisherman like a Deadliest Catch-style fisherman, okay? If you've never seen Deadliest Catch, these are like burly, attack-oriented fishermen. They're not like, you know, chilling on the dock, just hoping they catch something. They are out facing the storm, facing the elements. Their livelihood is attached to this. They're not camping. They're not just trying to uh, start a campfire and hang out. This is how they make their living. Their families go hungry if they're not successful. And so they're aggressive. They're burly. Um, You know, there's a reason why James and John, who are fishermen, were called the, uh, the sons of thunder, right? They were like, you know, they were like a, gosh, I, uh, if you imagine like a, like a biker gang, I don't know, I'm trying to think something, they're just aggressive, they were like, we're the guys, you know, they weren't soldiers, but they were out there living like on the land and dependent on weather and, uh, uh, and fish and, and things that just people fall over and they're like, oh, there's more for us. And, you know, my, my kids are eating better and, you know, no, I, but, but that's the, that's the principle. These guys, this is how they survived. And so this is who Peter is. He is aggressive, and he's got to make it happen. Um, history tells us he's probably the only one of the disciples that's over 20 when, uh, when Jesus first calls them. And so, so he's established. We know he was married. We know he had a, uh, a family because Jesus went to his mother-in-law at, at one point. And so he's, he's got a family. He's married. He's got to make things happen. And he interacts with Jesus. Jesus says, come, I'll make you fishers and fisher of men. And he leaves that behind. Can you imagine? I mean, we could just start right there. Can you imagine what it would take to take your entire livelihood, your whole sense of how you provide for your family, your skill set, the thing you know how to do, like you have a trade and you can do it successfully as an adult to provide for your family and have someone come to you and say, hey, follow me instead and say, yeah, drop it all and go. That's Peter. That's an incredible story. He's not highly educated. He didn't get the Ivy League education that we talked about last week with Paul. He's not uh, indigent. He doesn't not know anything, but he doesn't have, uh, he doesn't have a, that higher level education. It comes out several times. He's very brash. He's the one, probably because he's the oldest, we know the most about things he said because he probably dominated the conversation. The other disciples probably looked to him oftentimes with a look like, Peter, can you get in here? And then he willfully kind of run out there and was the mouthpiece for them and said things that we all laugh at later because we all have the hindsight of history and he did not. Uh, it's difficult to put us into the situation. If you left everything you had to follow a teacher and he said crazy things like eat my flesh and drink my blood or you have no part of me, you would ask him some questions too. You'd say, wait, 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 Jesus, I'm gonna need a little clarification over here, right? Because the fish thing was working out for me and I left that and we had a big crowd going here and the big crowd made me feel like I made a good choice, but you just scattered the big crowd. So what is going on? Like you would ask those questions too. We also know Peter was the one who, when Jesus came out, come on, we talked about this a couple months ago, Jesus came out on the water during the storm. Peter was the one who said, God, if that's really you, take me out to there. He's the only one of the, of the disciples. He's the only one in history besides Jesus who we can say walked on water, right? Then he looked away and he started to sink. There's all kinds of crazy things going on, right? If you're going to swing hard, I mean, swing hard. Fail big, go big, go home. That's Peter. I like Peter. He's the one who, when Jesus began to say, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to face this. I'm going to die. He's like, uh-uh, I'll never let that happen to you. And Jesus looks him straight in the eye and says, get thee behind me, Satan. What? That was Peter. That Jesus looked him straight in the eye and was like, Satan. Remember, I left everything to follow you. Now I'm Satan? He's also the one that we see in our story facing this incredible crisis point. The person he's left everything behind to follow has now been arrested. 
has now been taken. And here we go. Walking through this incredible story. In Luke chapter 22, what we just saw, we see that Peter, when put to the test, and Jesus has been arrested, he goes from this brash, loud, vocal leader of the disciples. Now, here's, here's one of the things that strikes me. We talked a couple, a couple weeks about, ago about pride and this idea that pride swells in us and makes us compare ourselves to other people. And it only leads to one of two places. It leads to either uh, envy, I don't have what they have, or, uh, or pride, which leads us to say, well, at least I'm better than these guys, right? And, and we have this incredible story of Jesus saying, everyone's going to betray you. And he looks at these other guys and he's like, these knuckleheads are going to betray you? Don't worry about it, Jesus. I'm your guy. I'm the alpha dog. I'll never do it. Yet here, we see this incredible story in Luke chapter 22. And I'm going to take you through a ton of scripture today, so just roll with me, um, and we'll, we'll land in John 21. It says, Then seizing him, they led him away. They took him to the house of the high priest, and Peter followed at a distance. It says, But when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down with them. And look at this. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him, but he denied it. He said, Woman, I don't know him. Now, I love this because I've been in youth ministry for a long time, and I can tell you there's a thing that happens in junior high girls that they can be intimidating. They don't know their power yet, right? But they start revealing their power. And if they're not intimidating, at least they can be loud and obnoxious. And everyone can hear what comes out of them. And here's this junior high girl, and he's like, hey, there's one of those guys. And they're sitting around a campfire, and here's mighty Peter. Mr. I walked on water. Mr. I'll never betray you. Mr. I'll be the mouthpiece. Jesus had looked at him and literally changed his name. Remember I told you everyone we're talking about got a name change, an identity change. He took him from Simon to Cephas or to Peter, and he said Peter meant rock. Petra meant rock. He said, you're the rock I'm going to build my church on. Peter's the one who he said, who do you say that I am? And he says, you're the Christ. He's the first one to put it together that the person that he gave up everything for is the Messiah, is the Holy One of God. They've been waiting for over 400 years to get a sign about this. And, and Peter's the one who puts it together. And Jesus says, you're blessed because no one revealed this to you but the Spirit. You've literally figured out what's happening here. And a junior high girl around the campfire knocks him off his path. Ouch. Ouch! Just let that shame get in for a second that he must have been feeling. That middle school girl says, hey, you're, you're one of them. And it just knocks him off of his path. Verse 58, a little later, someone else saw him and said, hey, you're also one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. And then about an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with them, for he is a Galilean. He's not from around there, and it's clear by his accent, by his dialogue, by his tan. He's a fisherman. He grew up in Galilee near Capernaum by the water. He's not from this neighborhood. They can tell immediately that he doesn't belong. And all of Jesus' closest crew are from this area. Verse 60, Peter says, man, I don't even know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered what the Lord had said to him. Before the rooster crows today, you'll disown me three times. It says, and he went outside and he wept bitterly. I was thinking about how low this must have felt. I was thinking about times when I felt low, like I disappointed God, like I disappointed my family, like I disappointed my faith. I was thinking about times that you get into that space. I was thinking about the emotion that comes in and the wave of guilt and the, and the shame that sometimes comes with that. And I was thinking about Peter really dealing with that, having to feel it. I mean, this is the guy. Jesus looked at him and said, you are going to be the catalyst for everything that happens after this. And a junior high girl knocked him off. And then just some guy. And then just some other guy. And the crooster crows, and now he's eyeball to eyeball with Jesus. He takes off after this. We're, we're not sure if on this side of the cross he ever goes eyeball to eyeball with Jesus again. And in that moment, he knows what, what God said about me, what Jesus said about me came true. 
I did fail. I did deny it. I did blow it. Now, this is a, this is a moment. And any of us who have been there can say, yeah, I feel that. I feel that. I love that he blows it so big. Everything he does, he does big, and I feel like that's just relatable. This isn't a little whiff. This is looking at the person who you trust the most, and you and they both know that you blew it, and you're without excuse. The weight of that hits. It gets into our heart, and it gets into our core, and we feel it. I got to back up a little bit in order to make this context make sense for us. So I'm going to take us to John 13, and then I'm going to take us to John 21. And in John 13, Jesus is letting them know what's about to happen. I'm in verse 33, and he says, my children, this is how he refers to them. He says, I'm only going to be with you a little while longer, and you'll look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. So a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By, all, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Now, pretty soon I'm going to connect this piece, but I want you to catch something. What Jesus says to Peter before Peter falls doesn't ever change. The destiny that he gives Peter, the things he spoke over Peter, the truth about what he's revealed to Peter's heart and to his life, Jesus knows he's going to blow it. In fact, he's about to tell him he's going to blow it. But all of these things that he's telling him before, they don't change just because Peter blows it. Verse 36 says, Simon Peter asked him, hey, Lord, where are you going? Peter's helpful that way. He always asks the right question. Jesus replied, but where I'm going, you cannot follow, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. Thanks, Peter. It's a perfect setup because Jesus answers, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you'll disown me three times. Now that is pretty powerful. This is a man saying, I am willing to die. Well, it's one thing to be willing to die in an upper room when your feet just got washed and you just ate some bread and you just drank some wine and you're sitting with your crew. It's another thing to be willing to die when there's Roman soldiers when the crowds are shouting, crucify him, when you're watching uh, the person who you love and adore and, and, and left your life behind to follow get hit over and over again and flogged and whipped and beaten, it's another thing to say I'm willing to die when the rubber is hitting the road. And Jesus says, really? Did you think about what you just said? Because you're saying that you have a certain level of courage that you have a certain level of conviction. And I've called you, and the reason that you feel empowered is because you know you have a destiny, because you can believe my words. But don't you think that this whole thing is going to be just smooth sailing, because when it's not smooth sailing, you're going to need my words to carry you. John 14, 1, Jesus begins again. He says, so don't let your hearts be troubled. Let's hold that right there. That word trouble Terrasso in the Greek, it just means an inward commotion, take away your calmness of mind, disquiet, make you restless, make you anxious, make you distressed, to perplex your mind, to suggest doubt. Jesus says, hey, don't let your hearts start doubting me. Don't let it get into your heart that there's some chance that I can't or won't do what I say I can and will do. Don't let that sneak in. It's going to want to sneak in. He wouldn't say don't do it if it wasn't going to happen, then we weren't going to have to face it, okay? He wouldn't, have, he wouldn't have gave a warning in this most intimate moment. Right after he looks Peter in the face and says, you're going to blow it, the next thing he says is, but don't let your heart get confused about what's happening here. I'm in control. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. And then we love this passage. In my father's house, there are many rooms. Some versions say mansions. I think sometimes we get mansions and we, get, uh, we, get, we lose sight of the point here. The point isn't that it's going to be awesome. It is going to be awesome. The point is there's many of them. The point isn't how awesome it is. It is awesome. The point is there's lots of space. Why is there lots of space? 
because everyone's invited. And there's a room for you, and there's a room for me, and there's a room for you, and there's a room for you, and there's probably another room for me because I got lots of stuff. I bring it with me everywhere. <laughs> Jesus says, relax. I'm going, but don't freak out. Don't miss what's happening here because in my father's house, there's space and there's room for you. If it weren't so, I would have told you I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come back to take you with me so that you may also be there where I am. Jesus is like, I got this. I got this. There is a spot for you. So Peter's just said, I'm willing to die for you. And he's like, really? Really, really? Because I think you're going to deny me before this whole thing is over. But don't let your heart freak out. Because though I'm going, where I'm going, there's room for you. If it wasn't that way, I'd tell you right now. But there's a spot and a place and a destiny for you. And if I go there and prepare a place, I'm coming back for you. That's really good news. That's crazy good news. That's amazing good news. You know, I was thinking about all the different ways this affects us. And, you know, there was a really good illustration. I think it was Francis Chan that did it one time. And I should have probably just brought that to you, but I'll just kind of try to visually show it to you. He had a really, really long rope, and it went all the way around the room. And he had a little piece of the rope that he had kind of taped. And he said, you know, if it, imagine this rope just goes on forever, and that's your life. And this taped part is the part of your life you live here on the earth. And we live like everything that matters is this taped part right here. But when God looks at our life, he sees the whole line. And here's Jesus saying, don't freak out. This taped part is just this much. I'm heading ahead of you to prepare all of the rest of your eternity for you. Guys, that's incredible news. That's an incredible picture of a loving God. And we have a hard time processing when the tape part doesn't seem to match our expectations. And Jesus is like, relax. You're going to blow it here. I know. I still am preparing a place for you. And it's awesome. You can enjoy the mansion part now. Now that you know there's a room for you. So you know the story. We'll get into it, especially as Easter closes in. Jesus is crucified. He dies. They put him in the tomb. On the third day, he rises again. The ladies show up. He's not there. They come back and tell the disciples. They freak out. They're all hiding. They've been hiding ever since the crucifixion. They're inside with the doors closed. They sent the ladies out. There's something there. <laughs> what happened to these burly fishermen? They are cowering in the room, and they sent the women to check on the grave, to check on the tomb. Now, you know they didn't get it yet, because if they got it, they'd have all been at the tomb, right? They'd have been doing a countdown. Three, two, one, Jesus! Like, they would have been there, right? That's not what they were doing. That's not. If they understood, if they really had gotten past here and into here, that's where they would have been. Or they would have been at least, like, camped out on the hills. Like, I don't know if they, what kind of, what kind of, Goggles they had back then, right? That had been like, Jesus, is he there? Do you see him? They're not. They're hiding. They're like, hey, ladies, you guys go check this out. Thank God for some courageous women. Woo. Willing to go check on the tomb for these guys. It's empty. John chapter 20 tells us this amazing story, and Jesus eventually gets there. Thomas does his thing, touches him says he does many miracles, talks to him about the Holy Spirit, and then he's gone. And then John chapter 21 happens. And it says, afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and it happened this way. Simon Peter, we know Peter, we're talking about him. Thomas, Nathaniel, uh, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together, seven of them. Simon says, I'm going out to fish. This is Peter. And they said, hey, we'll go with you. So they went and they got in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Let me just say something right here because this, this might be the thing you need to hear. Peter still isn't feeling it. Jesus has come back and he can't appreciate it. You know why he can't appreciate it? Because he still feels like he let God down. Even though God told him, hey, you're not perfect. Don't worry. There's a space for you. He still knows that he had a moment of honest 
introspection. He went eye to eye with Jesus and he felt like a failure. And you know what he does? He goes fishing again. He hasn't been fishing in three years that we know of. He left that behind. And here's what we do. We walk on this journey with Jesus. We feel called. We feel compelled. We feel directed. And then we blow it. And you know what we do? We put our guard back on and we retreat back to what we know. And we know we're headed this way and we go, ah, I had it figured out enough back here to make it. Now, here's the dangerous thing. He takes seven dudes with him. You never know who's watching your journey with Jesus. Feel that for a minute. You never know your influence. You're like, I'm not that influential. You don't know who's watching your journey with Jesus. You started on this journey. They said, hey, maybe I can do that. They're watching you. And here's Peter. He's like, man, I don't know. I'm just going to go backwards. Everyone's like, yeah, we'll go backwards too. That sounds like a plan. Now there's seven of them. Can you imagine? Here's Jesus who said, you're Peter, you're my rock. I'm going to build my church. That word church right there is not a building, okay? He doesn't say, hey, Peter, you're going to be the leader of the building team who's going to get our, our, our thing built up so that people will know where to. That's not what he says there. He says, my church, my ecclesia, my movement, okay? The church is a movement, as Jesus refers to it. Peter, you're going to shepherd this movement, this gathering of people, and you're going to take them the direction Point them towards me. You're going to teach them. Literally, you are going to overcome the world. Culture is going to change. Rome is going to fall. Everything is going to be different because a group of people believe the words of Jesus, that you could love radically, that you could forgive radically, that it could actually be possible to have a personal relationship with the creator of the universe. People are going to believe that because Peter is going to be a part of that movement. And which direction is he going? He's going backwards it's funny how a little failure can take us completely backwards that's why this is so powerful this this story is so powerful because none of the things that jesus spoke to peter had changed but peter had changed and because peter changed he walked backwards jesus still said you're the guy There's a call in your life. There's a destiny. There's a plan. There's a dream. You're going to lead your family. You're going to do this in the business world. You're going to do this in the kingdom. Whatever it is, he spoke that into his life. He's speaking it into your life. And when crisis comes, when defeat comes, when you feel failure coming, Jesus' direction for your life has not changed. So don't go backwards. Don't go backwards. Verse four, it's early in the morning. No one likes early in the morning. (laughs) Those of you that do are dismissed. (laughs) It says, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples didn't realize it was Jesus. I'm in verse five of John 21. Jesus called out to them. He says, friends, haven't you any fish? That's a burn, by the way, for a bunch of professional fishermen. (laughs) There's so many ways that's a burn. He's like, hey, guys, don't you know what you're doing out there? No, they answered. I can imagine they're just like if they had a rock, they just throw it at him right there. They don't know it's Jesus. So. And he said, hey, throw your nets on the side of the boat, and you'll find some. Now, these guys know how to fish, okay? They've been out there. They're pro. They're burly guys. They're trying to find their, like, moxie again, you know? They're all pro. They've been out there fishing. They caught nothing, and here's Jesus. He's like, hey, just throw your nets over again, and you'll find some. And they did it. And it says they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, I love that. I'm never going to be able to get past that. That's my favorite. This is John just talking about himself. Said to Peter, (laughs) it's the Lord. I love that John wants us to know he's the one that figured it out too. He's like, Peter, knucklehead. It says, as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, catch this, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and he jumps into the water. He had stripped down to fish. Think of how hard he's fishing. I don't know. I don't fish very much, but if you're fishing so hard, you got to get naked to do it. You're really, really trying to do, you're really trying hard. I don't, I don't know where to go with that. There's something culturally in there that I just can't comprehend, but... 
they're naked fishing, basically. You know, they're close anyways. Their outer garments are off. They're working hard. That's what happens when we, when we run away from Jesus, though, right? It takes us farther, further than we ever want to go. It brings us to a place of shame. It brings us to a place of self-humiliation. It brings us to a place where we allow things into our life we would have never allowed into our lives. But we're running from Jesus. And when we start running from that call, we start making compromises. And as we start making compromises, it starts taking us further. And it starts taking us further. And a little compromise becomes a lot of compromise. And pretty soon we're naked fishing. And we're exposed. And it's raw and it's ugly. And we took people with us. And it's humiliating. And, and that's where Peter is. You got to remember, they know that Jesus is back. Like the whole resurrection should have turned this thing around. If that doesn't turn it around, I don't know what turns it around, but it hasn't turned it around. Why? Because they're still feeling like somehow their failure has determined what God can and will do in their life. They still think it's about them. They've missed it. The other disciples followed in the boat. (laughs) Peter's jumped in. The rest of them are smart. They're like, hey, we could just turn the boat and get over there. They're towing the net full of fish, for they weren't far from shore, about 100 yards. When they landed, they saw a fire burning, coals with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said, hey, bring some of the fish you've just caught. And Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net to shore. It was full of large fish, 153. I love that. If you had a record catch and you were writing the Bible, would you put the number? I'd put the number in. I'd probably put the measurements in too, <laughs> right? I'd put all of that in. I just love, this is one of those things where you just look at the scriptures and you're just like, I love the authenticity of the scripture. John's like, I was there. I towed that in. It was heavy. It took us a while. There were a ton of fish. There wasn't just a ton of fish. There was 153, baby. That's a good day's work. <laughs> he wants us to know. 153 fish. There's no game warden, so they're good. But even with so many fish, the net wasn't torn. Jesus said, hey, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask, who are they? For they knew who it was. And I love this. Jesus met them at breakfast. He didn't meet them at church. He met them right where they were at. They weren't headed to church. They were headed to breakfast. And Jesus wasn't going to get short changed by not being able to be there. And I love that they were out there to go get fish so that they could eat. What did Jesus have for them already? Fish so they could eat. They were out looking for a way to somehow sustain themselves, and Jesus was saying, hey, I have got this. You think you need that. I have the provision. I have what you need. Jesus gave, Peter gave up. He gave up the fish to follow Jesus, but he really didn't give up anything. Jesus had already provided everything he was going to need. Sometimes we think, that following God's plan is a level of sacrifice that we somehow would never recover from. Yet here's Jesus saying, I've got you. I've got you. My provision is sufficient. Verse 13, when Jesus came, he took bread, he gave it to him, and he did the same with the fish. And this is now the third time that Jesus had appeared to disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when they finished eating, Jesus said to Simon, Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Now, this is powerful. I want you to catch this. Jesus does not start asking him questions because he doesn't know the answer. Jesus does not ask you a question. God never gives you a question because he's unaware of the answer. He asks the question because you need to be aware of the answer. You need to resolve the answer in your heart. It's not like he doesn't know the answer. So he asked Peter, hey, do you really love me? Why? Because Peter needs to answer it. So do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. And then again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And then a third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, look at me. Do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. Peter wasn't somehow under an assumption that Jesus didn't know the answer. He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell to you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. But when you're older, they'll take you by the arms and they'll lead you where you do not want to go. 
What is he saying? Jesus is saying, because you love me, the destiny I have for you hasn't changed. Go feed my sheep. Go be who you were designed to be. Go do what you were called to do. Go be your place in the kingdom, how you were designed to do it. Because you love me, you can go do that. If you're saying that you love me, that's all you're going to need. I'm going to do the rest. And I am not concerned with the fact that you're not perfect. In fact, I've moved through perfect people throughout history. You want to take a look? If the Bible was only concerned with what perfect people could do, we'd have a couple verses about Adam and we'd know Jesus and that's it. That's it. That's all we'd have. This would be a very thin book. If the Bible was only concerned with what perfect people could do. But it's not. It's concerned with what happens when imperfect people trust the living God. And nothing is impossible for him who believes. Some of you may think, well... Peter hadn't received the the spirit yet, so of course he was still flawed. He's still Peter. We see later on Paul criticizing him in Galatians because he's he's picking favorites. He's picking the Jews who are more traditional over the kind of reckless Gentiles, and and he's you know he's still struggling. He struggles with Cornelius and accepting other uh, cultures into the kingdom. He's got to work some things out. He's not made perfect. He is just perfectly assigned by God. And in that perfection, what only God can do happens. God knows we're going to blow it. He knows we're going to fail. He knows you're going to struggle. His power is made perfect in your weakness. I was really wrestling with this idea of acknowledging that I'm not perfect in front of all you guys. I'm moving towards perfection. Every day, a little closer. I slip along the way, stumble. And to be honest with you, we haven't known each other that long. I'm going to probably figure it out. I'm not perfect. But I know the one who is. I know the call he's put on my life. And I know there's nothing that's impossible for him who believes. And sometimes it gets on me, and it gets in me, and I have to fight that battle, going eye to eye with Jesus, saying, man, I failed. And he says, oh, but you're not a failure. You'll be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You'll be transformed. I have a plan for you. And it doesn't change. And you didn't blow it. Some of you have looked backwards and thought, man, I've, I've been blowing it for this whole season. You know what? His plan for you hasn't changed. There's hope in the future. You're not done yet. Some of you are like, I'm retired. Good. You got more time to start doing his plan for you, <laughs> right? Some of you are like, I'm so busy. You understood how crazy my kids are. Good. You get to be the, 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 the leader of this family. And who knows the influence you might have by how you raise your kids and how you love them and how you do what God's designed you to do in the kingdom. There are no dishonorable parts in the kingdom. If you are doing what you're designed to do as part of the body, good. That's what Jesus spoke, and that's the life that he gives us. That's the freedom that he gives us. We are not, we are not discounted, excommunicated, lost from the plan that God had for us because we blow it. If he needed you to be perfect, he'd take you home. You could start living on this side of the rope. He just needs you to be available, honest, and let him be perfect in you and through you. If you did that, imagine, imagine what God could do. Imagine what he'd do in this church. Imagine what he'd do in this neighborhood. If we could get over ourselves, if we could say, yeah, I know God has a plan for me, but (laughs) yeah, I know me, so it's not gonna work right now. I gotta get to the other side of some stuff. Imagine... If we could just say, you know what? I know I'm not perfect, but I ain't going fishing. I ain't going backwards. I'm not that dude anymore. I'm not that gal anymore. 
So yeah, I know from time to time, I used to be someone who just let my fury and my rage go, but I'm not that person anymore. So the next time I blow it, my default position isn't gonna go back and let my rage and let my fury go. I used to be someone who drowns my sorrows literally, but I'm not that person anymore. So next time I go, I, I, I've slipped. It's not, it's not permission for me to walk back and just embrace who I used to be. I'm not that person anymore. I am made new. That's what the cross accomplished. That's what Jesus wanted us to know. That's why he has to let Peter know, hey, if you love me, you can still do what I've decided and declared you can do. Go feed my sheep. Go feed my lambs. It's available for you. It's available for me. Would you guys stand with me for just a second? And we're just going to have an honest moment here as we close. This truth is one of the truths that if we could get our heads around it, I don't think you understand the power that gets unleashed in heaven and on earth. When we stop carrying guilt and shame, you know, God never works through guilt and shame. Nowhere in the scriptures. It's not one of his tools. God's in the redemption business. And when you're battling guilt and shame, you're not wrestling with God. It's not how he ticks. He's in the redeeming business. He looks at his children he created. He says, there's hope. There's a plan. There's a purpose. You fit in the kingdom. And if we could get our minds around this, if we could get over that roadblock of, well, I would, but, or I could, but, I, can't, I, that, I know that's a thing, but, if, I, if we could deal with that thing, that thing where we know us and we think somehow that we know better than God when it comes to us like God could do it but he's not going to be able to do it through me are you kidding me God only does that kind of stuff through you know pastors or some nonsense like that listen I'm just part of the body doing my job no special anointing thing that I don't hear God better than you can hear God. I don't have like a, I don't have a, you know, I have a higher standard of, of what I'm held to because I teach, but that's just part of my body. My, my job in the body doesn't, doesn't elevate me to some esteem. Like I can do some things that you can't do in the kingdom. I can only do what I'm designed. You do what you're designed. You do things I can't do in the kingdom because you're designed to do them. If we can get our head, like, to, to, to get that into our heart, that the body needs you, that God, our body works when you do your part, when you do what you're designed and called to do, and when I do what I'm designed and called to do. And all of a sudden, the same thing that happened in, in, in Peter's time, culture getting transformed, governments being invaded with the gospel of peace and truth and forgiveness, like literally culture just exploded with radical love and radical forgiveness and radical just just understanding that the God of the universe has a plan for people and people have value and he moves through them and he redeems them. Even what, what others may see as unredeemable, he never sees as unredeemable. And when we get that in our hearts and in our minds and, and we believe that that's the mission that Jesus left us here with, it can transform things. It can transform churches. It can transform neighborhoods, families, communities. It, that's what's at stake. That's why this fight is so important. That's why Jesus was like, I'm meeting Peter before he goes backwards because he can't get this piece wrong. He has to understand, and we all have to get it, that just because we blow it doesn't mean God can't redeem, restore, and, 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 and supernaturally accomplish everything he wants to accomplish in us and through us. I think you're awesome. God knows what he created. He knows he has a plan for you, purpose. He knows the old nature that you fought. He knows the new nature that he makes available to you. Can you imagine if we would just know that when we looked in the mirror? We can believe it about someone else. That's why I'm picking on myself. It's easy for you to probably just project that on, well, some people can do that. Some of you have hung out with me. You know I'm not perfect, but you haven't hung out with me yet. Let me just reveal. I blow it all the time. All the time. 
probably blew it in this message with some of my illustrations. I don't know. But here's all I know. God's in the redemption business. He can use a knucklehead like me. He can use you. If you would just believe that he is who he says he is and can do what he says he can do. He's in the redemption business. Nothing is impossible. Is it possible? He's shocked at that question. Like, seriously? There's only a few times Jesus is shocked in the entire scriptures. Do you know that? There's only a few times he's shocked. He's shocked when he goes to his hometown and they don't believe. He's shocked at their unbelief. And he's shocked. It says he's amazed twice at great faith. At great faith. It's the only two things that like elicit that kind of response. He's like, whoa, that's what I'm looking for. Whoa, that's what I'm not looking for. Let's be on this side. Whoa, that's what I'm looking for. Faith is simply, it comes to fruition when we believe God is who he says he is and can do what he says he can do. When we believe that, that's faith in action. So here's my challenge. Are there some things that you've been holding on to thinking, well, I don't know if I can ever do that because, well, I DQ'd myself, disqualified myself. If you believe in that, that's a lie. I'm not perfect, but I got that from this book. That's a lie. That's not the truth. So we're going to deal with that. Are there some things you know that you're called to do? Some dreams he's put in your heart? Maybe some of them are just very simple, like you're going you're gonna to love your family well. You thought, well, I, this is as good as I can love my family. You're going to forgive someone. You're like, oh, I can never forgive. You're like, I should, but I can't forgive. And again, we'll, get, we'll get closer to forgiveness, and you guys, are a little, you guys like me a little bit more. But here's what I know from this book. Everything is possible for him who believes. His power is made perfect in your weakness. If you would trust him, if you would rely on him, if you would believe, he's in the redemption business. He doesn't make junk. He didn't screw up when he made you. He made you. This is the part that just blows my mind, right? He knew all of the knuckleheaded things you were going to do, and he still created you. Are you kidding me? He could have just been like, let's not do that one. He's going to be, let's not do that one. Like, no, right? But he didn't. He still created you. That's crazy love. That's, that, that's crazy belief in the power of redemption. And then what's even wilder than that is he takes those things that we've been through. And in the process of redeem, redeeming them, he gives us authority in them to actually go and become difference makers in other people's lives who are struggling with the same things. And then my mind just goes... How can you take my weakness and create a strength out of it? But you see, when you're in the redeeming business, it's possible. Everything's possible for him who believes. So we're going to pray, and then the prayer teams are going to come up here, and if you've got to wrestle with some stuff, they're going to be here. But here's my, just my challenge for you, and, and, and I just want you to, to get your mind around this. He's in the redeeming business. You can't disqualify yourself. It never happens in here that someone disqualifies themselves. Murderers get used by Jesus. I mean, are you kidding me? People who have, have, have completely run away from their call get redeemed all the time. If it was only perfect people, I'm telling you, this would be a short book. You can't shock him. You don't shock him. He knew it already. So here's what we're going to do. I just, uh, I, you know, we're over on time, so I'm, I'm just going to pray. But I just, I just think that we can't move from this place without maybe just acknowledging some things, okay? So because, because it's private, not because it's spiritual, I'm just going to ask you to close your eyes. And if, if you're comfortable, please do that. And uh, I, again, it's not more spiritual to close your eyes, but it's private. And we'll just be respectful of others. But if you're here, I'm just going to talk to a couple quick, quick people. Maybe you've never trusted Jesus. And you're hearing me talk, and it sounds really good, and you want to believe, 
and you're like this father in the early on that I, that I talked about that says, I believe, and then he realizes his belief isn't where he thinks it should be, and he says, oh, God, help me overcome my unbelief. The scriptures, it's all about Jesus' first message was repent and believe the good news for the kingdom of God is near. That's what he, the platform, Mark 1.14, that's the whole platform. And repent just means change your mind about what you think and who you serve and who God is. And maybe today for you is just, I need to repeat, repent. I need to believe the good news because the kingdom of God is near and you've never done that. This is an amazing opportunity and I'm not gonna embarrass you and no one's gonna be looking around, but if you would just say, yeah, I, I need to do that. I haven't done that before. And, and, and my faith is gonna have to step out a little bit here and this is gonna be uncharted territory for me and I don't even know what comes next, but I need to take a step of faith and say, God, if you're there, I wanna put my trust in you. I wanna change the way I think. I don't wanna be at, at the center of my life. I wanna put you in the center of my life and, and believe that you can redeem me. If that's you, would you just lift your hand and say, yeah, I need, I need to do that never done that before. Nobody's looking around. Yeah, see those hands. See those hands. You can put your hands down. Maybe you're here and you would just say, you know what? <laughs> I prayed that prayer. But, you know, my struggle is I just, I just got weary and I gave up. Paul talks about that in Galatians. He says, don't become weary in doing good for at the proper time we'll reap a harvest if we don't give up but we sometimes give up or we move backwards. And we start believing a lie that somehow that, that where we came from is as far as we could go, like God didn't have a plan for our future. And we've returned to things that we know we shouldn't return to. And we move backwards as if somehow we, we were locked in or stuck or trapped. And Jesus would simply say, do you love me? Then move out of this, go forward do what I've designed you to do. And for some of you, just a simple acknowledgement today, God, I love you and I need to move forward. I've been stuck. If that's you, no one's looking around. You can just lift a hand just as, as an acknowledgement. Yeah, God, I need to move forward all over this place. You can put your hands down. I'm gonna pray for you and with you. And I'm just gonna believe that God's gonna do what only he can do. He's gonna renew minds. He's gonna change the way we think. He's going to change what we believe to be true. Now understand this, when, when he does that, there's going to be opposition and resistance and the enemy's going to want you to believe that's a lie and you got to recognize that God doesn't move through guilt and shame. That's not how he ticks. And so when you're fighting that, you're not fighting God. You're fighting the enemy. Understand who you're fighting. Scriptures say that they overcame the enemy by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. That means what Jesus did and when you declare what he's done for you. That's how you fight that battle, in case you're wondering. So God, that's what we believe and overcome our unbelief. That you are who you say you are. The son of God in the flesh, that you came and walked among us, lived a sinless life, that you paid the price as a sacrifice because there was a gap between heaven and earth and it was our it was on us it was our nature our sinful nature kept us from interacting with heaven there was death that we carried around in our body and it kept us from reaching heaven and so lord god you sent your son to pay the price so that we could be forgiven we could literally be redeemed so that we could have unfettered access to the kingdom of heaven while we were on earth that's incredible we don't have to be who we've always been because you did what you did. So God, we don't want to move backwards. Father, I pray for those that would just acknowledge today that this is their moment of stepping out in faith and saying, God, would you come? God, I change my heart, my mind from thinking I'm the center of the universe. And I say, God, you occupy the first place. I believe the good news that you paid the price so that I can be forgiven. I am not who I've always been. I'm forgiven. I'm redeemed. And I move forward like the kingdom of God is near because it is. I get to interact with it every day and the people that you love and created. For those of us who have felt stuck, I pray freedom in the name of Jesus. God, your word says it's for freedom that I'm set free. Just for freedom's sake, 
you set us free because freedom was better because freedom's what we were designed for. You didn't design us to be bound up in all this stuff. You designed us to be free. So I pray in the name of Jesus, we would move forward in that freedom. We release, we let go, we surrender the things we've wanted to hold on to. God, we will not go back. We're not going fishing in our marriage. We're not going fishing in our job. We're not going fishing in our, uh, back to our addictions. We're not going fishing back to whatever the things are that have attracted us. We're not gonna fish with that relationship that we know we shouldn't fish with. We're not going back. We're not fishing anymore. You pulled us out of there. You've already provided all the fish we need. So we're not going backwards. We're gonna move forward into what you've called us and who you've called us to be. And because of that, God, it's gonna transform and change things. Our families are gonna have to be different because we're moving forward and we're not going backwards. The way we interact with people is gonna have to be different because we're going forward and we're not going backwards. We're not who we always were. We're literally redeemed. God, that's amazing. I'm so incredibly aware of how amazing and humbled by how amazing that is that somehow you thought this world would be better with us in it. Eternity would be better with us in it. You must have known something we couldn't know about who we really are. Help us to know that, God. Help us to move forward in that truth. God, we love you. We thank you. Bless those children's workers who had to put up with a couple extra minutes up there. Just redeem that time for them. Help us to be gracious and loving to them when we pick up our little ones. And just help us to have a great week in you. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen. Would you high five someone? Yeah, you can give the Lord a hand. If you need some prayer, the prayer teams are up here. We'll see you next week. God bless you.